Hello there. This is Brother Timothy Groover coming to you with another edition of the Word of the King. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us where the word of the king is. There is power, and who may say unto him, What doest thou? If you want the power of God's word in the English language, just find yourself a King James Bible, and you will have the power of God's word in the English language. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Without the word of God, there is no saving faith, my friend, and without the incorruptible seed of the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever, there is no salvation. There is no being born of the Spirit of God. This year, the year of our Lord, 2017, happens to be the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, in which God moved upon the heart of a man by the name of Martin Luther. And my friend, if you have the pure word of God in your language today, if you have it in your language today, with the exception, of course, if you have Greek, sound Greek manuscripts, and the sound Hebrew, if you have the word of God in your language today, you can thank God for that time in which he moved, known as the Protestant Reformation. Today, on the word of the king, I'm going to open up with a word of prayer here, first of all, and then I'm going to get into a book by the name of Miller's Church History, written by a man named Andrew Miller. I'm sure you would get, be able to get a copy of it, though you may have to look a little bit. And we're going to get into the approaching dawn of the Reformation, chapter 27 of this book. But before I do that, let me open with a word of prayer. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you, dear Lord God, for your moving in the heart of that soul named Martin Luther. I want to thank you, dear Lord God, for moving upon him to look into the book. Your words, Lord God, as he had access to him in his day. Thank you, dear Lord God, for leading him to the realization, as your word says, the just shall live by faith. Sola Scriptura, as they say. Scripture alone. And Father God, we want to thank you for the testimony of your hand at work in the Reformation. Now, Lord God, as I would continue now, I pray, may your saints... Be all the more thankful, dear Lord God, in light of the heritage that was received and what came of that time and that event known as the Protestant Reformation and the way, Lord God, you caused the bondage and the walls established by the papacy and the Roman Catholic Church to come tumbling down. We praise you. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting off here, chapter 27, in Miller's Church History, written by Andrew Miller, The Approaching Dawn of the Reformation. Centuries before, Luther nailed his theses to the church door in Wittenberg. The Lord was preparing both nations and individuals for the accomplishment of this great work. The weakening of the papal power 
and the increasing boldness of the witnesses foretold what was approaching. In our contemplations of Rome, we must always distinguish between the Catholic Church and Popery, or the ecclesiastical and the temporal power. Let me stop in here and just interject real quick for you, listener. Temporal power has to do with the Pope's so-called right to rule over the nations of the world. Lord willing, I'm going to interview real soon a brother in the Lord named Nico Verhoff. I'm going to hear his testimony. And it just so happens that uh, Nico himself has studied up much on uh, the matter of the Counter-Reformation and the Society of Jesus, also known as the Jesuits. But the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, they are the ones who are fighting to this very day. Nearly 500 years later, they are the ones who are fighting to this very day to establish the temporal power of the papacy of the Pope of Rome over all nations. Continuing on, the church, though fallen and enslaved, was still the church, Protestant in heart and faithful in measure to Christ, but to venture in her pious services beyond the defined limits of Roman Orthodoxy, subjected her to its severe discipline. The papacy vowed destruction on all trespassers. Immorality, irreligion, might be passed over at least with a slight censure, but heresy or schism, in other words, any form of dissent from the Roman Church must be rooted out by fire and sword, and all heretics consigned by pontifical sentence to eternal death. So, the dawn of the Reformation, friend, you're talking in the years leading up to 1545. Those years, there was a big number of years, a uh, big period of time before 1545, known as the Dark Ages, in which the papacy ruled with an iron fist. Continuing on, here, in Miller's Church History by Andrew Miller. During the long reign of papal terror, the true saints of God witnessed and prophesied in sackcloth. But the silver line of sovereign grace was preserved unbroken from the days of the apostles under the sheltering wing of the living God. He preserved his witnesses from the devouring dragon in the secret places of the earth, in mountains, valleys, and caverns, and in many quiet convents in the remote regions of Christendom. But it may be interesting, first of all, to renew our acquaintance with the state of Christianity in some of the countries which we have already noticed. In this way, we shall naturally fall in with our long line of witnesses which go down to the days of Luther. And first in order, we will notice the state of Christianity in Ireland. Centuries have rolled on since we last looked at the state of things in the sister island. St. Patrick left behind him at his death in 492 a band of well-educated, devoted men who greatly venerated their master and sought to follow in his footsteps. By the way, St. Patrick, he was not a Roman Catholic. Dear listener, I know we were led to believe that. We were lied to. St. Patrick was not a Roman Catholic. The fame of Ireland for its monasteries, missionary schools, and as the seat of pure scriptural teaching rose so high that it received the honorable appellation of the Isle of Saints. On the testimony of Bede, we learned that about the middle of the 7th century, 
Many of the Anglo-Saxon nobles and clergy repaired to Ireland either for instruction or for an opportunity of living in monasteries of a stricter discipline. We have already noticed the labors of the Irish clergy as missionaries. The colonies of Iona owed their origin as a Christian community to the preaching of the Irish apostle of Columba. Britain, France, Germany, the Low Countries, and different parts of the continent of Europe were mainly indebted to Irish missionaries for their first acquaintance with divine truth. Charlemagne himself, a man of letters, invited to his court various eminent scholars from different countries, but especially from Ireland. For many ages she maintained her independence of Rome, rejected all foreign control, and acknowledged Christ only as head of the church. But the invasion of the Danes about the beginning of the ninth century and their occupation of the country quenched the light and changed the character of the Isle of Saints. These piratical and predatory hordes wasted her fields, slew her sons, or dispossessed them of their inheritance, demolished her colleges, and maintained themselves in the country with the cruelty and arrogance of usurpers. Real quick, if I can interject a thought, dear listener, to provoke you to think a little bit, it says right here that Rome in her day, she dispossessed them of their inheritance. Imminent uh, domain, have you ever heard of imminent domain? <laughs> yes, imminent domain, dispossessing individuals of their inheritance. Rome is still at work today, dear listener. She's working through the Jesuit order, again, of which Brother Nico Verhoff will speak more of in the interview which we are going to have. Continuing on. Up till this time, religious institutions and labors of the ecclesiastics form the chief subjects of her history, but since then, intestine, wars, turbulence, crime, and desolation, various attempts have been made by Roman pontiffs to subject the Irish church to the Sea of Rome. Uh, the Sea of Rome is basically just another uh, reference to the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church. Various attempts have been made by Roman pontiffs to subject the Irish church to the Sea of Rome, but without success until the reign of Pope Adrian IV. He was an Englishman known by the name of Nicholas Brickspear, born in poverty and obscurity. He became a monk of St. Albans and was afterwards elevated in the revolution of human affairs to the pontifical dignity. Though suddenly raised from indigence to opulence, his pride and arrogance were extreme. He took great offense at the Emperor Frederick Barbarossa for omitting to hold his stirrup and refused to give him the kiss of peace. Frederick declared that the omission was the result of ignorance and submitting to the service of a query to his holiness was forgiven and received the kiss. The kiss. The Bible says kiss the Son, Jesus Christ, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way. The Pope of Rome as the Antichrist he is, demands the kiss of the sinner, as only the Son of God is worthy to be kissed. Son of perdition, son of perdition. Continuing on, amongst the earliest acts of this modest pontiff was the assumption of authority over Ireland and making a grant of it to Henry II, King of England. The ground on which the Pope rested, his right to make this grant was thus expressed. For it is undeniable and your majesty acknowledges it, 
that all islands on which Christ, the Son of Righteousness, hath shined, and which have received the Christian faith, belong of right to St. Peter and the most holy Roman Church. In virtue of this right, he authorizes Henry to invade Ireland with a view to the extension of the Church, the increase of religion and virtue, and eradicating the tares of vice from the garden of the Lord, on condition that a penny shall be yearly paid from each house to the, to the sea of Rome. Revelation 17 says, And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Continue it on. From this period, 1155, the Irish church came to be essentially Romish in its doctrines, constitution, and discipline long before the Reformation. Nearly 600 monastic establishments belonging to 18 different orders were scattered over the entire face of the country. Ghostly friars, black, white, and gray, swarmed in countless multitudes, practicing upon an ignorant and deluded people. In 1172, Henry completed his conquest of the country. An assembly of the Irish clergy convened at Waterford, submitted to the papal dictation, proclaimed Henry's title to the sovereign dominion of Ireland, and took the oath of fidelity to himself and his successors. Rapid declension now marked the church in Ireland. Her far-famed spirituality and intelligence were gone. At one time, she had about 300 bishops at the dawn of the Reformation. We believe the number was under 30. Jealousies, contentions, and rebellions have blotted almost every page of her history, both civil and ecclesiastical, from the ninth to the present century. Christianity in Scotland. And if I might just interject, dear listener, now you know uh, how Ireland became the Roman Catholic nation that it so much is today, with the exception of the remnant of Protestants that are there. Christianity in Scotland. Continue it on. We have already seen that the Roman clergy experienced great difficulty in obtaining a permanent footing in Scotland. The Caldees, whom we are disposed to honor for their work's sake, continued for centuries to resist the encroachments of popery and to maintain their ground, notwithstanding all the efforts put forth by the Church of Rome to crush and exterminate them. For they held fast by the word of God, like the reformers of a later day, as the only infallible guide and the authority in all matters of faith and practice. Even Bede, the monk historian, in candor admits that Columba and his disciples would receive those things only which are contained in the writings of the prophets, evangelists, and apostles, diligently observing the works of piety and virtue. Both Rome at length triumphed, the faithful called ease, long oppressed, diminished in numbers, weakened in energy, through the sorceries of Jezebel, disappear from the page of history, and Scotland is again enshrouded in darkness and superstition. Monasteries rose rapidly and soon overshadowed all the land, and as they reached a height of wealth and power, unsurpassed in any other portion of Europe, we must give them a brief examination. If I could interject here, the author speaks of the sorceries of Jezebel in connection with the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, throughout church history, dear friend, the Roman Catholic Church has indeed despised and persecuted true believers in Jesus Christ with the same hatred and with the same animosity as Jezebel herself chased Elijah. Continuing on, the great mania for enriching churches began with Charlemagne. Alfred the Great imitated his example, and soon all Christendom was infected by this superstition. In the person of Margaret, the Saxon princess, it traveled northward, 
the invasion and conquest of England by the Normans and the establishment of a new dynasty in that country produced the most important effects on the history of the church in Scotland. Many of the Saxons fled into Scotland to escape from their new masters, and among others, Margaret, who became the wife of the Scottish king, Malcolm III, and the mother of Alexander I, a powerful and vigorous prince, and of David I, who was a bigoted supporter of Romanism. Margaret's piety, charity, and ascetic life are celebrated with enthusiasm by her confessor and biographer, Turgot, a monk of Durham, and bishop of St. Andrews. Malcolm, animated by the devout spirit of his beloved wife, made some donation to the church, but the royal munificence of his son David in the endowment of bishoprics and abbeys has been rewarded by the praise of all monas monastic writers. Although James I speaks of him as a sore saint to the crown, yet his extravagant superstition tended not only to impoverish the crown, but to the oppressive taxation of the people. Did you catch that? If I can interject, dear listener. Yet his extravagant superstition tended not only to impoverish the crown, but to the oppressive taxation of the people. <laughs> oppressive taxation of the people, especially those of us from the United States of America know something about that, and I'm sure other parts of the world as well. Oppressive taxation. It's a weapon of the Vatican, the Jesuit order, being the ultimate culprit or means whereby the Vatican enforces such control. Continuing on. That his extravagant superstition tended not only to impoverish the crown, but to the oppressive taxation of the people. He founded the bishoprics of Glasgow, Brechin, Dunkeld, Dumbling, Ross, and Caithness. The same pious liberality called into existence a multitude of abbacies, priorities, and nunneries, and monks of every order and in every garb swarmed in the land. The superior civilization of the Anglo-Saxon refugees and their attachment to the English hierarchy tended greatly to its establishment in Scotland. The Celtic element was depressed while the court took an English tone and character. From this period, we are informed a stream of Saxon and Norman settlers poured into Scotland. They soon acquired the most fertile districts, from Tweed to the Pentland Firth, and almost every noble family in Scotland now traces from them its descent. These new proprietors, following the example of the monarch, lavished their riches in the church. The passion to found and endow monasteries became so great that long before the Reformation, there were upwards of a hundred monasteries spread over the country and more than twenty convents for the reception of nuns. A brief sketch of two or three of these religious houses may not be uninteresting to the reader, which will also show the state of things introduced by the Romish hierarchy into that once simple and primitive country. The statistics are taken from Mr. Cunningham's history. Mr. Cunningham being a source that this author, Andrew Miller, got his information from. Continuing on. The wealth of the abbeys in Scotland. And by the way, dear reader, I trust that you noticed about the riches and the wealth even back in those days of the Vatican. <laughs> Not to mention what her wealth is today. Revelation 17 says, verse 4, And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls 
having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Verse 5, and upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, Mother of Harlots and Abominations of the Earth. Continuing on. The wealth of the abbeys in Scotland. Jedburgh, one of the noblest abbeys in Scotland, was held by the Red Friars. Among the donations made to it by a succession of pious benefactors, we find the tithe of the king's hunting in Tiviotdale, a house in Ruxburgh, a house in Berwick, pasture for the monk's cattle along with those of the king, timber from the royal forest according to their wants, the mulcher of the mill, a measure of corn from all the men of Jedburgh, a salt pan near Stirling, exemption from any exaction on their tons of wine, a fishing in the Tweed, acres, plowgates, and exchanges of land with a valley to till, and several parish churches with their tithes and other revenues. They followed the rule of St. Augustine, which bound them to devote the first part of the day to labor and the remainder to reading and devotion. Paisley, the Abbey of Paisley, was anciently one of the richest religious houses in Scotland. It was founded by Walter Fitz Allen, the high steward, about the year 1160, for Cluniac monks who followed the order of St. Benedict. They were first located at Wentford, but afterwards removed to Paisley, and were soon richly endowed by the pious liberality of successive high stewards, and by some of the great lords of Lennox and the Isles in the 13th century. They were in possession of 30 parish churches with all their revenues and about two-thirds of the whole soil of the extensive parish of Paisley had passed into their hands with acres and plowgates in almost every district in the west of Scotland. The Stuarts had moreover given them the tithe of their honey and the skins of all, their, of all the deer taken in the adjoining forest, pasture for their cattle, a milk Paisley's, a salmon net in the Clyde at Renfrew, Fishing at Lutwinock, Lutwinock, the liberty of quarrying both building stones and limestones for burning at Blackhall and elsewhere, of digging coal for the use of their monasteries, its granges, smithies, and brewhouses, of making charcoal of dead wood and of cutting turf for covering in the charcoal, of green wood for their monasteries and grange buildings, and for all operations of agriculture and fishing. So you see how back in this day the Roman Catholic Church had control over such things as farming, agriculture, fishing. Friend, working through the Jesuits, she still does it today. Perhaps one of the things that I will ask Nico Verhoff in the interview to address is this whole matter of the Jesuit, Roman Catholic, medical and food inquisition in the United States of America. That will get into that more with Monsanto and the way they pollute the soil and cause the food that springs up in the United States of America from the crops to be corrupted and void of natural nutrition. Continuing on, such were the monks and such their revenues in those days. They might well rejoice in the abundance of all the good things of this life, but the parish priest, strange to say, was left in a state of poverty and dependence. The revenues of the parish were appropriated by the bishops and religious houses, so that a very scanty income was reserved for the parochial clergy. All went to fatten the idle friars, who, whatever their primitive virtues may have been, were now the scandal of the church. At the time of the Reformation, 
thousand parishes in Scotland, about 700 had been appropriated to bishops and religious houses. The more thorough and regular division of the country into parishes and dioceses took place about the beginning of the 12th century. Some of our youthful readers may be disposed to inquire why it was that in the 12th and 13th centuries, more especially, the kings and nobles of the earth strove with each other to enrich the church. Many causes combined to produce this state of things. The feudal charters in those days were signed with the kings as he could not write his own name and all his subjects were rude, ignorant, and superstitious. The monks and friars had a high reputation as we have frequently noticed in our history. Far superior holiness, the fervor of their devotions, and the austerity of their lives. These things have attracted the attention and, and won the veneration of credulous and superstitious age. Besides, the donor was assured that his donations would secure the repose of his soul after death, which then meant eternal life. It was by means of this great religious imposter that the clergy attained to such a degree of opulence and power that the rich became their worshippers and built them those beautiful houses, the very ruins of which still attract the traveler and excite his admiration. Purgatory, the Roman Catholic heresy, the Roman Catholic lie of purgatory, if I can interject here, is the religious imposter that uh, this author is making reference to, uh, the giving of money to perform masses to get souls out of that so-called place they call purgatory, which does not exist, dear listener. The Word of God says this in Hebrews chapter 1. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, verse 4, being, so, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by an inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Let your Roman Catholic friend know, dear listener, Jesus Christ did all the purging. Purgatory is a lie of the devil, and it has one purpose, and that is to make the wallet of the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth, the Roman Catholic Church and her hierarchy, rich. Rich in the, in the temporal wealth of this world, which is going to perish at the end. We brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can take nothing out. But to this very day, dear listener, to this very day, it is the rich of the earth. It is the rich of the earth who bow down to the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Again, Revelation 17, 18. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. So you see right now how things were even prior to Martin Luther coming on the scenes. Real quickly, real quickly, I'm going to read a portion here. Reflections on the history of popery. Again, from Andrew Miller's writing. We have traced, however briefly, the origin, progress, and loftiest height of the papal system. This was reached by the great abilities of Innocent III. But how varied and full of all contrarieties and contradictions is that marvelous and mysterious history. We pause for a moment to reflect on the hypocrisies and tyrannies, the assumed piety and positive cruelty of that woman Jezebel. It was she who sent the choicest of her children in early times to dwell in the lonely mountain cave or the secret cloister under the pretense of their peacefully contemplating the glory of God and being transformed to his image. 
But again, we hear her with altered voice rallying the myriad host of Europe to go forth and rescue the Holy Land from the foul grasp of the uncircumcised Philistines and defend the banner of the cross and the Holy Sepulchre. Now she becomes callous to the common feelings of nature and sensible to the miseries of mankind and stained with the blood of millions. For 200 years, she employed all her power in promoting the destruction of human life by the ruinous expeditions to the Holy Land. And as each successive crusade proved more hopeless and disastrous than the former, she redoubled her exertions to renew and perpetuate those scenes of unequal folly, suffering, and bloodshed. Oh, and by the way, dear listener, the uh, Andrew Miller here speaks of the Holy Land, Israel, uh, the papacy. The papacy uh, has uh, just as much uh, rule over Israel today as any other nation on the face of the earth. Uh, the leaders of modern-day Israel are, in fact, uh, Freemasons. Freemasons, 33rd-degree Freemasons, subject to the Pope of Rome. In fact, even Benjamin Netanyahu, this current uh, leader of Israel, even he went to Rome to visit the Pope. Finally, Revelation 17, verse 6, And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wanted with great admiration. This has been another edition of the Word of the King. Till next time, till next time, this has been Timothy Groover. Well, the Timothy Groovers saying, God bless you and yours.